Hello everybody, this is Patrick Attaway and this is Demise of the Podcast. Coming from my living room, this is a podcast discussing writing. And today we're going to be talking about Charles Bukowski's writing as we finish up Factotum, hopefully. I do have a few talking points before we get into the book. Uh, last couple of episodes I haven't had as much to say. But we are getting closer and closer to September. So my second novel, Price of the Trinity, will be out very soon. Now, I have an Amazon description that I'm going to read because uh, I want to talk about it a little bit. Set in Atlanta, circa 2010, Ken Price details his experiences as a college freshman who immediately stands out as unique among his peers at historic Jefferson Tate. While trying to find his own path, Ken inadvertently follows his serial killer father's footsteps. Envisioned as a companion piece to Attaway's debut novel Demise of the Trinity, Price of the Trinity continues his exploration of a psychotic, violent protagonist struggling to find his place in the world. How does that sound, everybody? Of course, if you've listened to past episodes of the podcast and heard me talk about this book, you know that the historic Jefferson Tate, uh, I put the word historic in the description of the text because it is a fictional historic black college in Atlanta. Um, When I originally wrote this book starting in 2011 it was Morehouse and it was Morehouse up until really recent drafts you can hear cicadas in the front yard over here Uh, by the way I'm in the living room because I have prostatitis it is very uncomfortable because I'm in pain Uh, if you don't know what prostatitis is it is an infection of the prostate and I tweeted about how I went to the doctor this week, I went Wednesday, and that the prostate is the dumbest part of the, ma- the, the male anatomy. I think I actually said that the prostate is the, the dumbest part of being a man. It is a hindrance when it wants to be. And I have experienced kidney stone pay that is far greater than this mind you but the thing about a kidney stone is that it passes you know uh this prostatitis first occurred last year august of last year actually and uh the doctor joked when i went in to see him wednesday that uh it seems you have a thing for coming to see me in august and this time instead of taking seven days of This antibiotic, I'm going to be on it for three weeks. Now, I don't know what effect it's going to have on me after three weeks, but I hope it clears up everything within me. Uh, Last year, one of the benefits of being on antibiotics for a short period was that I didn't really get sick. I didn't get a cold last year. So, uh, usually around this time of the year, August, September, October, November, I have a cold at some point, but last year I didn't really ever get a cold. So that was nice. But back to the book, I got really sidetracked. Um, Yeah, for those of you who are unaware, this book was originally more satire, almost like Catcher in the Rye meets... I don't know, Confederacy of Dunces, where this white kid is on a black campus and la di da. Well, there are a number of reasons why I changed that, other than fitting it in with uh, Demise of the Trinity and Ken Price. Uh, for one thing, I'm not smart enough to pull that off and not come off as an idiot or really audacious. Uh, second of all, it's kind of secondary to the main plot. So, If you pick this book up, the only real inclination that you're going to have that he's at a black college is the fact that within the first chapter, 
they acknowledged that Ken is white. And I was very careful to remove most uh, references to race throughout the novel. Because ultimately, uh, what I learned from Percival Everett is, in a book, race doesn't really matter as much. In fact, uh, erasing that aspect, it sort of lends itself more to humanity and the fact that we're all, you know, the same. But also, race shouldn't be a character's entire persona. So that was another aspect of it. So since the novel is not about race and it's not about racial differences, um, I don't think it's really relevant anymore. The, the book itself is, is about Ken and his journey. And no, you're not supposed to like Ken. But put that out right now. If you read Demise, you know Ken as a psychopath. And he doesn't really have any redeeming qualities. So this book tells you everything you need to know about that character. And what's really interesting about Ken and Demise is that he's not a, a he's a huge part of the plot, but he's not in the book very often. And that was purposeful, of course. Uh, there is a mention of him in the um, first chapter with Al, where Al is over at Charles Price's brother's house, and his nephew Ken comes out, and they talk a little bit. And then, later on, Walter and Murray Grone say that uh, Fonda Communications has hired Ken Price, and that makes them fearful. They think that they're fucked because of that. So, there's your little John Wick reference there. It's a nod at that sort of storytelling. Um, Someone on Reddit years ago was talking about how John Wick did such a good job of of showing and not telling. There's that one scene where the, I believe he's Russian, the Russian mobster is talking to his son and how they're fucked because if John Wick's after them, uh, there's nothing that they can really do unless they're able to kill him. And th- being that John Wick is someone who is able to kill someone with a pencil, uh, it's probably going to be very difficult now I think at that point in the movie we hadn't really seen John Wick really in action yet so you get the sense that he's a badass even though you don't see him being badass and no one just says oh he's badass they give examples Ken is meant to be that sort of John Wick although he's a villain uh, a John Wick figure in demise that's the best analogy i can give you because i came up with ken way before i ever heard of john wick but in this novel we see that he is indeed not only a psychopath but he receives training from murray groan and of course if you've read demise of the trinity you know that murray groan was raised by Lucifer. So, a man who is brought up to be an Antichrist is training Ken for the purpose of serving Lucifer. And, of course, Ken rejects that. So, there's sort of your introduction to Price of the Trinity. If you have no interest in the book at this point, I suggest you not buy it and read it. It's interesting. uh, Trying to sell a book... And I I don't know what people think when they go into buying a book, but one of the things that I've always done is I've picked up the book, I've looked at the back, I've read the first page. If I don't like the book within the first page, I put it down. And you can do that on Amazon. You can read the first few pages, and you can read the description, And you don't have to read the rest if you don't like it. And what's shocking is that a lot of people will still complain about the book even from the preview. 
and I, I don't really care to hear about that. And this brings me to my next talking point, and that is the question of whether or not our idols as writers would like us as people or even like our writing. And I feel that 99% of the time, they probably would not like our writing and in many cases would not like us as people. But uh, earlier this week, or maybe just Thursday or Wednesday, I posted a review that someone posted of Factotum, the book that we're talking about today, and they lambasted it. But they seem to not know Bukowski very well. They say this is the first time they're reading him, so they're complaining about the sexism, they're complaining about the constant talking of drinking and bumming around. Well, honey, that's the fucking book, okay? Now, Bukowski was a genius. I don't think that anyone could argue against that and win with me because I will always believe that he is a brilliant writer no matter what he said about himself, no matter what he said about other people, no matter what he said about women, there is a brilliance to his writing, to his outlook on life that I don't think anyone else can replicate. Now, there have been a lot of people who have tried, and that also goes to show you how brilliant he is. Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, and there's a shit ton of people, including myself, who have tried imitating him. Of course, in my sense, in my case, I've always considered it trying to show Bukowski influence, and when I read his work in my head, I'm sort of reconsidering how I form sentences, the structure, the prose, and the dialogue in my work. That's what influence is. But I had this conversation with someone on Twitter last night and this morning about Hunter S. Thompson. And I do not feel that Hunter S. Thompson would like me as a person. Now, does that diminish my enjoyment or my love for his writing? No. But I know myself well enough to know that while I don't think that, um, well, I don't think Hunter S. Thompson would be an asshole to me, but I don't think he'd have any interest in really having more than one conversation with me, if that were ever on the table, that is. I don't know where I would be that I would <laughs> have a conversation with Hunter S. Thompson, because I don't drink, I don't really hang out with other writers, but then you have to consider uh, Bukowski. So Bukowski was a supposed misanthrope, though there are some people who might uh, disagree with him being a rough asshole. Now, we have footage of him being an asshole, especially to his wife, Linda, but the thing is, everyone's got different sides to them. So... It's not like he was lying about himself all these years. We know that he's not a great guy. But, as MJP points out on This Is Not A Test, a lot of that was exaggerated. However, MJP also told a story on This Is Not A Test. I keep referencing him because I want you to go listen to him, and I'm also citing my sources. I don't want to tell someone else's story and not give them credit. So on his podcast, go listen to it, he tells a story about how he knows Linda Bukowski. And he knows her more so through his girlfriend and the fact that she's an artist. And I don't think that Linda Bukowski has any interest in MJP as a... Uh, provocateur or a curator of anything Bukowski. I think that her interest in him is pretty much just through his girlfriend, Carol S., and the fact that, well, if you have friends, you have to be, you know, nice to their spouses. But they had a disagreement one time, and Linda was apparently drinking, and she 
chastised MJP for giving his opinion on a friend of Bukowski. And I don't think it was a very harsh opinion. Again, you'll have to listen to his story. I'm just recounting his story. But Linda told him that she didn't think that Bukowski would like MJP if he were alive to know him. Now, I can tell you that I don't think he would either. And it's not that MJP is a bad person. He's not at all. He's actually a really intriguing, intelligent guy. And he's got great stories of his own. And he's a great storyteller. But that doesn't mean that I could see him and Bukowski sitting down and drinking. Uh, I really can't see Bukowski sitting down and, and enjoying drinking with anyone for very long, except for maybe a woman he plans on having sex with. But they're just, I, I mean, I don't know the guy. He's dead. I just know him through his work. So I don't think that Bukowski would like me either. Now, I've known men like Bukowski that I got along with. Uh, they weren't dear friends of mine, but I like them. They like me. No big deal. Now, I know that he wouldn't like my writing. I, I sort of write urban fantasy. I don't think that Bukowski was aware of Kurt Vonnegut, but when I reference what my work is like, I usually say a cross between Kurt Vonnegut and Brett Easton Ellis. It's just easier to to give someone that visual. Uh, and Vonnegut, as sweet as of a guy he was, I don't know that I would probably even want to know him, uh, just knowing what I know about him. Brilliant writer. But, of course, we have to get to my favorite writer, Brett Easton Ellis. Brett is a troll, I admire him for that. I don't agree with everything that he says, and he says a lot. I know that he wouldn't enjoy my writing. I know that he wouldn't enjoy most people in the writing community on Twitter. But if you've ever read one of his books, you'll know why. If you've ever read an interview with him, you'll know why. He doesn't really write all that much anymore in terms of fiction. He's admitted as much, and he's also stated that he doesn't really read very often as, as much as he would like to. He often doesn't finish books. And honestly, I'm the same way. And the whole deal with that is that there are so many different things diverting our attention spans that how can we sit down and read a book? I used to read a book a week, but this was before I had other obligations in life like work, wife, school. And I read a lot because of school, but at the same time, there are things distracting me from that. I can't sit down and read a Shakespeare play without maybe looking at my phone every five minutes. Why? Because that's just how I get through it. When I studied in college for French stuff or German stuff, as I did, I would sit in front of the TV with a notepad and I would copy down terms for hours with the TV on. It just helped me study. I am not going to retain the information if I'm forcing myself to only pay attention to the work because my brain is going to reject that. That's just how it works with me. I don't know why, but I have my way of getting through things and other people have their way of getting through things but in 2020 when we have things like TikTok where we have videos that are a minute or less at our disposal and we can swipe through them like a dating app well uh, what why would you want to read and as I said in the introduction of cornbread poetry there's stuff on television now that is better than most books. And it, it it has great writing in it. And it's visual. So your brain doesn't have to work as hard. 
So, why read? I love reading. I'm not telling you you shouldn't read. I'm a writer. I want you to read. I want you to read my work. I want you to read the greats. The people that I consider the greats, of course. And this is a writing podcast. Why would I try to dissuade you from reading? But uh, I think that there are more things to do in life. So we're all trying to cram as much life into our lives because we don't know when we're going to die. And when you're dead, it's not going to really matter whether or not you read Dostoevsky. Let's get back into the book, shall we? We're at chapter 50, page 113, if if you're reading along. Of course, I don't expect that any of you are. I had my winnings and the bookie money, and I just sat around and Jane liked that. After two weeks, I was on unemployment, and we relaxed and fucked and toured the bars, and every week I'd go to the California State Department of Employment and stand in line and get my nice little check. I only had to answer three questions. Are you able to work? Are you willing to work? Will you accept employment? Yes, 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 I always said. I always had to turn in a list of three companies where I'd applied for work during the previous week. I took the names and addresses out of the phone book. I was always surprised when one of the unemployment insurance applicants would answer no to any of the three questions. Their checks were immediately withheld and they were walked into another room where they were specifically trained by counselors who would help them on their way to Skid Row. So... This is sort of apropos and relevant to our current situation where unemployment is pretty widespread through this country. I am now permanently working from home. And I still have a job, still working 40 40 hours a week. But there were people in my company who were not so fortunate. And... There are a lot of people in this country who are having their hours cut or they're just completely laid off. And we're entering an era where a lot of people are going to have a hard time finding new work unless they want to work doing something that pays them a lot less than what they were doing, something that is more physically demanding, etc., etc., And I can tell you, as someone who has worked some hard jobs on my feet, that uh, I don't want to do that again. Because when I worked at the hospital on 12-hour shifts, my arthritis got so bad that I couldn't even walk to the bathroom. And that is the evening that my wife made me quit. So... Imagine someone like me having to quit his job and then go work in a store, retail, or in a restaurant, and it would just be very difficult and very painful for me physically. Mentally, at this point, I don't really care as much. But we have unemployment as a safety net for people like me, but unemployment runs out. And then we have disability for people who are far more in distress than me. And that is not really enough to get them by. I can tell you that right now. But in spite of the unemployment checks and the backlog of racetrack money, my bankroll began to vanish. Both Jan and I were totally irresponsible when we were drinking heavily and our troubles kept arriving by the car load. I was always running down to Lincoln Heights Jail to bail Jan out. She'd come in the elevator with one of the dyke matrons at her elbow, almost always with either a black eye or a cut mouth, and very often with a dose of the crabs, compliments of some maniac she'd met in a bar somewhere. Then there was bail money, and then court costs and fines, plus a request by the judge to go to AA meetings for six months. I, too, gathered my share of suspended sentences and heavy fines. Jan managed to extricate me from a variety of charges, ranging from attempted rape to assault to indecent exposure to being a public nuisance. 
again, I have to stop because he mentioned the R word. Uh, we talked about this in post office. I don't know if Bukowski ever raped a woman. I don't know if he ever attempted to rape a woman. But in post office, there is a graphic scene that is kind of blurring the, the lines between whether or not it's rape. But uh, there is a woman screaming rape as he's mounting her. So uh, I don't really... Yeah. And then there is also a short story where... The protagonist, as written by Bukowski, gets drunk, blacks out, and molests a little girl. Uh, I would like to believe that is also fictional and never happened. And a lot of Bukowski fans, especially on Bukowski.net, will tell you that those things probably never happened. And everything that he wrote was fictional. And yet, a lot of this stuff is supposedly based on his real life and heightened or fictionalized. So why would he mention the part about rape? I don't know. Uh, he's dead now. Disturbing the peace was one of my favorites too. Most of these charges did not involve actually serving any time in jail so long as the fines were paid. But it was a Huge continual expense. I remember one night our old car stalled just outside of MacArthur Park. I looked into the rearview mirror and said, Okay, Jan, we're in luck. We're going to get a push. He's coming up right behind us. There are some kind souls in this ugly world. Then I looked again. Hold your ass, Jan. He's going to hit us. The son of a bitch had never slackened speed, and he hit us straight from the rear, so hard that the front seat collapsed and we were thrown flat. I got out and asked the guy if he'd learned to drive in China. I also threatened his life. The police arrived and asked me if I cared to blow up in the little, into the, their, the, the, their little balloon. He didn't write the stuttering part. That was just me. <laughs> Don't do it, said Jan, but I refused to listen. Somehow I had the idea that since the guy had been in the wrong and hitting us, that I couldn't possibly be intoxicated. The last I remembered was getting into the squad car with Jan standing by our stalled car with the collapsed front seat. Incidents such as this, and they came along one after the other, cost us a lot of money. Little by little, our lives were falling apart. If you're listening to this and you're thinking that we're near the end of Chanaski and Jan, you wouldn't be wrong. And... This is a relationship that carried on for far too long. And it's obvious that they loved each other in some sense. But they were not good together in the long run. Now, it's hard to deny that with all the bad memories, Bukowski denied himself the good memories because he obviously has very fond memories of Jan and the scene in post office when she passes away in the hospital that is indicative of a, a tremendous amount of love so it, it really makes you wonder about toxic couples like this and how their love for each other is both selfish, but also neglectful of themselves. On to chapter 52. When I awakened, I was sweating. Jan's leg was thrown across my belly. I moved it. Then I got up and went to the bathroom. I had the running shits. I thought, well, I'm alive and I'm sitting here and nobody's bothering me. Then I got up and wiped, looked. What a mess. What a lovely, powerful stink. Then I vomited and flushed it all away. I was very pale. A chill convulsed my body, shaking me. Then when there was a rush of warmth, my neck and ears burned, my face reddened. I felt dizzy and closed my eyes and leaned on both hands over the washbowl. It passed. I went and sat on the edge of the bed and rolled a cigarette. I hadn't wiped myself very well. When I got up to look for a beer... There was a wet brown stain. I went into the bathroom and wiped myself again. Then I sat on the bed with my beer and waited for Jan to awaken. 
I'm noticing that, as I've stated before, Bukowski is not afraid to kind of fall into a pattern, but also his means of conveying an emotion, or in this case a sickness, is pretty straightforward. But it's not um, elementary, if you will. This isn't something that a 14-year-old boy could write convincingly, I don't think. So, therein lies the brilliance of Bukowski. I had first learned that I was an idiot in the schoolyard. I was taunted and poked at and jeered, as were the other one or two idiots. My only advantage over the other one or two who were beaten and ch chased was that I was sullen. When I surrounded, when I was surrounded, I was not terrified. They never attacked me, but would finally turn on one of the others and beat them as I watched. This is hearkening back to that scene in Hamon Rye when those boys surround Bukowski or Chinaski, and they all yell at him but he's got this demeanor that scares them away. This is why it's kind of a good idea to read Ham on Rye and then read Factotum and then read Post Office. Again, I don't recommend Ham on Rye being your first Bukowski novel, but if you're going to reread these books, I think it's rewarding to read them in chronological order. Jan moved, then awakened and looked at me. You're awake. Yes. That was some night. Night? Hell, it's the day that bothers me. What do you mean? You know what I mean. Jan got up and went to the bathroom. A mixture of port and wine with ice cubes. And set it on the nightstand. She came out, sat down, and picked up the drink. How do you feel? she asked. Here I've killed a guy and you ask me how I feel. What guy? You remember, you weren't that drunk. We were at Los Alamitos. I dropped the old guy through the grandstand. Your blue-eyed would-be lover with 60000 a year. You're crazy. Jan, you get on the booze, you black out. I do too, but you're worse than I am. You weren't at Los Alamitos yesterday. You hate quarter horses. I even remember the names of the horses I bet on. We sat here all day and evening yesterday. You told me about your parents. Your parents hated you, right? Right. So now you're a little crazy. No love. Everybody needs love. It's warped you. People don't need love. What they need is success in one form or another. It can be love, but it needn't be. The Bible says, love thy neighbor. That could mean to leave him alone. I'm going to get a paper. Jan yawned and lifted her breast. They were an interesting brown-gold color, like tan mixed with dirt. Get a little bottle of whiskey while you're out. I dressed and walked down the hill toward 3rd Street. There was a drugstore at the bottom of the hill and a bar next to that. The sun was tired, and some of the cars went east. Some of the cars went west. And it dawned on me that if everybody would only drive in the same direction, everything would be solved. On Reddit, there was a quote from Bukowski about uh, something to do with being in the bathtub and being wet and whatever. But it was some th thing that he probably said in an interview that people have quoted over and over again. And it, he didn't really mean it to be anything particularly profound, but it comes off that way because it's from Bukowski. And people were mocking him for his uh, sort of quasi-philosophical view on life. And here we are with one of those quotes. It dawned on me that if everybody would only drive in the same direction, everything would be solved. Well, of course he doesn't mean that. But people out there who don't 
no irony or have a sense of humor, well, they're not going to get the joke. I bought a newspaper. I stood there reading it. There was no mention of a murdered horse player at Los Alamitos. Of course, it had happened in Orange County. Maybe Los Angeles County only reported their own murders. I bought a half pint of Granddad at the liquor store and walked back up the hill. I folded the paper under my arm and opened the door to our place. I threw the half pint to Jan. Ice, water, and a good jolt for both of us. I am crazy. Jan walked in the kitchen to mix the drinks, and I sat down and opened the paper and turned to the race results at Los Alamitos. I read the result of the fifth race. Three-Eyed Pete had gone off at nine out of two and had been beaten by a nose by the second favorite. When Jan brought the drink, I drank it straight down. You keep the car, I said, and half the money I have is yours. It's another woman, isn't it? No. I got all the money together and spread it on the kitchen table. There was $312 and some change. I gave Jan the car key and $150. It's Mitzi, isn't it? No. You don't love me anymore. Stop this shit, will you? You're tired of fucking me, aren't you? Just drive me down to Greyhound, will you? This is a way to break up with someone. Now, the way he puts it out there, there's no real kind of give or tell that he's about to to leave her, or at least not from my perspective. He's going to the liquor store. He comes back. She mixes him a drink. We get into this toxic behavior of not eating anything and drinking first thing in the morning. But it's like he has clarity all of a sudden. Sort of like that moment where he says, if we only drive in one direction, everything will be solved. It's just, that is unfeasible. We can't all start driving in the same direction. We can't all go to the same place. But this... This issue with him and Jan, it can be solved by just leaving. So, he figures, now is the time. She went into the bathroom and started getting ready. She was sore. You and I have lost it. It isn't like it was at the beginning. I mixed myself another drink and didn't answer. Jan stepped out of the bathroom and looked at me. Hank, stay with me. No. She went back in and didn't say anything more. I got the suitcase out and began putting a few things in there. I took the clock. She wouldn't need it. Jan left me outside the Greyhound bus depot. She hardly gave me time to lift my suitcase out, and then she was gone. I walked in, purchased my ticket. Then I walked over and sat down on the hard-backed benches the other passengers we all sat there and looked at each other and didn't look at each other we chewed gum drank coffee went to the restrooms urinated slept we sat on the hard benches and smoked cigarettes we didn't want to smoke we looked at each other and didn't like what we saw we looked at the things on the counters display racks potato chips magazines peanuts bestsellers Chewing gum, breath chasers, licorice chops, toy whistles. And that is the end of Chinaski and Jan. I have chapter 55 dog-eared in this book, so let's get to it, shall we? The Florida State Department of Employment was a pleasant place. It wasn't as crowded as the Los Angeles office, which was always full. It was my turn for a little good luck. Not much, but a little. It was true that I didn't have much ambition, and there ought to be a place for people without ambition. I mean, a better place than the one usually reserved. And here we are with a classic Bukowski quote. 
How in the hell could a man enjoy being awakened at 6.30 a.m. by an alarm clock, leap out of bed, dress, force feed, shit, piss, brush teeth, and hair, and fight traffic to get to a place where essentially you made lots of money for somebody else and were asked to be grateful for the opportunity to do so? My name was called. The clerk had my card in front of them, the one I'd filled out when entering. I had elaborated on my work experience in a creative way. Pros do that. You leave out the previous low-grade job and describe the best ones fully. Also leaving out any mention of those blank stretches where you were an alcoholic for six months and shacked up with some woman just released from a madhouse or a bad marriage. Of course, since all previous jobs were low-grade, I left out the lower low-grade. The clerk ran his fingers through the little card file. He pulled one out. Ah, here's a job for you. Yeah? He looked up. Sanitation worker. What? Garbage man. I don't want it. I shuddered at the thought of all that garbage. The morning hangovers. Blacks laughing at me. The impossible weight of the cans. And me puking my guts into the orange rinds. Coffee grounds. Wet cigarette ashes, banana peels, and the used hand packs. Um, I do have to address the Blacks line, just because I know that some listeners are going to cringe at it. Uh, I don't know what he means exactly about Blacks laughing at him, other than a lot of Black people being poor at this time, uh, and also seen as lesser than whites. I don't know that Bukowski felt that way, I am just offering you an interpretation of the line. A lot of people use that quote to justify their arguments against working, having jobs. And Bukowski, if you've read any of this book, obviously had a lot of jobs. And despite the periods of time where he was unemployed, you see that he actually tried to be employed. While he didn't attempt to have the same job for very long until he started working at the post office, you get the sense that he understands he has to work in the system in order to get by. And he can't buy his drinks or uh, bet on the horses if he doesn't have any damn money. I can't really lie to you and say that Jan doesn't pop up in the book again, but I'm going to skip all that because I only have so much time, and I expect you to read this book if you're listening. Uh, If you've already read it, you already know, and you don't need me to tell you this, do you? But since this is the last episode where I'm going to be discussing Factotum, I'm going to go to the last chapter. And if you don't like spoilers, I suggest you turn the damn podcast off. So we're at chapter 87. Workmen for industry was located right on the edge of Skid Row. The bums were better dressed, younger, but just as listless. They sat around on the window ledges, hunched forward, getting warm in the sun and drinking free coffee the WFI offered. There was no cream and sugar, but it was free. There was no wire partition separating us from the clerks. The telephones rang more often, and the clerks were much more relaxed than at the farm labor market. I walked up to the counter and was given a card and a pen anchored by a chain. Fill it out, said the clerk, a nice-looking Mexican boy who tried to hide his warmth behind a professional manner. Isn't it interesting that he mentions a Hispanic kid here and... I am 99% sure that the last chapter in Ham on Rye, when he plays the boxing game, he's playing it against a little Hispanic boy. I began to fill out the card. After address and phone number, I wrote none. Then, after college and work abilities, I wrote two years at L.A. City College, Journalism and Fine Arts. Then I told the clerk, I ruined this card, can I have another? He gave me one. I wrote instead, graduate, L.A., high school, shipping clerk, warehouseman, laborer, some typing. That is 
smart. So I have a college degree, and I couldn't even get a job at Home Depot after I finished college. Uh, they're more interested in job experience. No matter where you go, no matter what job you're applying to, doesn't matter what kind of degree you have, doesn't matter what kind of job it is, if you're not the only job candidate and they want someone with experience and you don't have experience, they're not going to hire you. Now, there are cases where people do get hired right out of college. I would like to imagine those people have experience through internships or maybe through lab work or uh, killing people who drive their big trucks through neighborhoods. But Bukowski is sort of trying to hide his intellectualism as well. He doesn't want the people at the, the company to think that he's too good for the job or maybe will think that he's too good for the job. All right, said the clerk. Sit down and we'll see if anything comes in. I found a space on the window ledge and sat down. An old black man was sitting next to me. He had an interesting face. He didn't have the usual resigned look that most of us sitting around the room had. He looked at us as if he was attempting to not laugh at himself and the rest of us. He saw me glancing at him. He grinned. Guy who runs this place is sharp. He got fired by the farm laborer. Got pissed, came down here and started this. Specializes in part-time workers. Some guy wants a boxcar unloaded quick and cheap he calls here. Yeah, I heard. Guy needs a boxcar unloaded quick and cheap he calls here. Guy who runs this place takes 50%. We don't complain. We take what we can get. It's okay with me, shit. You look down in the mouth, you alright? I lost a woman. You'll have others to lose and lose them too. Where do they go? Try some of this. It was a bottle and a bag. I took a hit, port wine. Thanks. Ain't no woman on Skid Row. He passed the bottle to me again. Don't let him see us drinking. That's the one thing that makes him mad. While we sat drinking, several men were called and left for jobs. It cheered us. At least, there was some action. My black friend and I waited, passing the bottle back and forth. Then it was empty. Where's the nearest liquor store, I asked. I got the directions and left. Somehow... It was always hot on Skid Row in Los Angeles in the daytime. You'd see the old bums walking around in heavy overcoats in the heat. But when the night came and the mission was full, those overcoats came in handy. When I got back from the liquor store, my friend was still there. I sat down and opened the bottle and passed the bag. Keep it low, he said. It was comfortable in there drinking the wine. A few gnats began to gather and circle in front of us. Why gnats, he said. Some of the bitches are hooked. They know what's good. They drink to forget their women. They just drink. I waved at them in the air and got one of the, the wine gnats. When I opened my hand, all I saw in my palm was a speck of black and the strange sight of two little wings. Zero. Here he comes. It was a nice-looking young man who ran the place. He rushed up to us. All right, get out of here. Get the hell out of here, you fucking winos. Get the fuck out of here before I call the cops. He hustled us back to the door, pushing and cursing. I felt guilty, but I felt no anger. Even as he pushed, I knew that he didn't really care what we did. He had a large ring on his right hand. We didn't move fast enough, and I caught the ring just over my left eye. I felt the blood start to come, and then felt it swell up. My friend and I were back on the street. We walked away. We found a doorway and sat on the stop. On the step. I'm not a very reliable reader. I handed him the bottle. He hit it. Good stuff. He handed me the bottle. I hit it. Yeah. Good stuff. Sun's up. Yeah, sun's up good. We sat quietly, passing the bottle back and forth. Then the bottle was empty. 
Well, he said, I gotta be going. See you. He walked off. I got up, went the other way, turned the corner, and walked up Main Street. I I went along until I came to the Roxy. So, as I was saying about Bukowski wanting to be employed versus not wanting to be employed, um, his thirst was greater than his need to be employed. Photos of the strippers were on display behind the glass out front. I walked up and bought a ticket. The girl in the cage looked better than the photos. Now I had 38 cents left. I walked in the dark theater eight rows from the front. The first three rows were packed. I had lucked out. The movie was over and the first stripper was already on. Darlene. The first was usually the worst. The old timer calmed down. Now reduced to kicking leg in the chorus line most of the time. We had Darlene for openers. Probably someone who had murdered or was on the rag or having a screaming fit, and this was Darlene's chance to dance solo again. But Darlene was fine, skinny, but with breast, a body like a willow. At the end of that slim back, that slim body was an enormous behind. It was like a miracle, enough to man drive a man crazy. So that's the thing about Bukowski. He's always sort of negging a woman and then building her back up. You don't see him entering a conversation with a woman by negging her, but he's mentally negging her. Oh, God. That's a funny thing to me, this whole concept of negging a woman as if uh, building a relationship is like playing a game of The Sims. Darlene was dressed in a long black velvet gown, slit very high. Her calves and thighs were dead white against the black. She danced and looked out around us heavily, mascared eyes. This was her chance. She wanted to come back to be a featured dancer once again. I was with her as she worked at the zippers more and more of her began to show and to slip out of that sophisticated black velvet leg and white flesh. Soon she was down to her pink bra and g-string, the fake diamonds swinging and flashing as she danced. Darlene danced over and grabbed the stage curtain. The curtain was torn and thick with dust. She grabbed it, dancing to the beat of the four-man band in the light of the pink spotlight. She began to fuck that curtain. The band rocked in rhythm. Darlene really gave it to that curtain. The band rocked and she rocked. The pink light abruptly switched to purple. The band stepped it up, played all out. She appeared to climax. Her head fell back. Her mouth opened. Then she straightened and danced back to the center of the stage. From where I was sitting, I could hear her singing to herself over the music. She took a hold of her pink bra and ripped it off, and a guy three rows down lit a cigarette. There was the G-string now. She pushed her finger into the belly button and moaned. Darling remained dancing at center stage. The band was playing very softly. She began to gentle grind. She was fucking us. The beaded G-string was swaying slowly. Then the four-man band began to pick up gradually once again. They were reaching for the culmination of the act. The drummer was cracking rim shots like firecrackers. They looked tired and desperate. Darlene fingered her naked breast, showing them to us, her eyes filled with the dream. Her lips moist and parted. Then suddenly she turned and waved her enormous behind at us. The beads leaped and flashed, went crazy, sparkled. The spotlight shook and danced like the sun. The four-man band cracked and banged. Darlene spun around. She tore away the beads. I looked. They looked. We could see her cunt hairs through the flesh-colored gauze. The band really spanked her ass. 
and I couldn't get it up. So you see that Darlene is someone, as Spakowski said, who once had dreams and she held on to those dreams. And despite the fact that she's stripping and doing a burlesque dance for all these men, she is still trying to get her dream. She loves to dance. And even if it's for the enjoyment of horny men, well, it's all the better for her. But Darlene is sort of a, a simile or a metaphor for the people on Skid Row who are always trying. And for one reason or another, no matter how hard they try, they're not leaving. And with Bukowski, the only reason why he got out is because he got a job at the post office and he had a regular life for a while. And... Yeah, he always drank, he always tried to have women, but at a certain point the women stopped coming around and it was just him drinking. And when he started to write more and started submitting more again, he was still dreaming, just like Darlene. So you have to wonder if we'd never heard of Bukowski, if by 50 he. Pub post office came out and no one read it. Well, do you think he would have stopped? I don't think so. And that's what Darlene is all about. She's grimy. But there's a sexiness about her. Especially to him. Because he likes the idea of being with someone who's seen something. Who's experienced something. You don't see him uh, fetishizing young girls, you know. That's the thing. I just watched some of that Jeffrey Epstein Netflix documentary, and I was horribly disgusted. I don't know if I'm going to finish it. And I know that pedophilia is a mental disease. It's not something that anybody necessarily wants. And granted, as I've discussed before, I don't know that Jeffrey Epstein would technically count as being a pedophile. Uh, what he was doing was mostly statutory rape. There is a difference. But as a grown man, I don't see the, the intrigue of being with someone that young. And Bukowski didn't really seem to either. In fact, much like him, I would rather be with someone like Darlene. You know? I'd rather have someone who has experience. You can see their scars. That's beautiful. And for me... And you can you know, interpret this how you will, but women have always been like wine to me, and I've always liked older women, even when I was very young. So, I just, I don't get it with people like Jeffrey Epstein, but that's not what this is about. And with Bukowski, there's that famous photo of him and that very unattractive woman that is barely wearing anything. And I think that she was just a friend or maybe he met her once or twice. I don't know the full story there, but it, a lot of people think that that's him and Jan or Jane Cooney Baker. It's not. There are only a couple of actual photos that I've seen of Jane Cooney Baker. Now, there is a photograph of, I think, her sister and a man who looks a lot like Bukowski, but apparently is not Bukowski. Um, but I do think that there was a lot more to his attraction to Jane Cooney Baker than just the way she looked. And as I said in the last episode, she was obviously very attractive. 
in the sense that she was able to attract a lot of different men. And Bukowski, being Bukowski, was not exactly a prized winner. So, men like Bukowski and these women like Jane Cooney Baker, they, they come together like magnets when they really should be like opposing magnets, <laughs> like oil and water. Anyway, I finished Factotum for this podcast. There's a lot left for you to enjoy. So I highly encourage you to go read more Bukowski. I don't know what I'm going to read next week. Could be women. It could be Hollywood. It's not going to be pulp because I've, despite the fact that I have pulp, I've never read pulp. So I have to pick something to read before we get into Price of the Trinity because as soon as that book comes out, all bets are off. I'm not talking about anything for a while except for my own writing. And then Spoiled Rice, my poetry collection, will be out in November. And I'll be talking about that. Um... If you have any ideas or any books you would like me to review that I enjoy, uh, by all means, let me know. But until then, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading. <laughs>